Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be uh, back with you. I was away last weekend on the men's canoe trip, and there's many things I could say about that trip, but the, the best thing I could say is that it's good to be back in civilization. Uh, we had uh, a lot of rain, uh, a lot of rain as we camped. We had high winds as we were canoeing and paddling, and it just felt like sometimes like we had a, the mosquitoes were like swarms of locusts, and uh, Anyway, that was, that was uh, part of the experience. But for me, always the, the most difficult part of backwoods camping is uh, the washroom. You know, uh, what can I say? Uh, I, probably what stood out to me, Sunday night, um, heading to bed, maybe it's 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, and I've got to wander about 30 meters into the, to the forest where a little... Uh, cardboard, uh, not a, a wooden wooden box that had become our toilet for the weekend, right? Lift open the uh, lift open the the wooden lid, and out from inside the uh, the the box scurries this very well fed mouse, and I apparently I interrupted his meal. Um, he jumps up on the on the lid and didn't seem at all worried about me. He just was looking at me like this, and I'm looking back at him thinking, okay, one of us has got to move. And, um, and then he scurried off. And I just thought, I really wish I hadn't have brought my flashlight. Because as I sat down, you know what's going through my mind, right? Like, how many more of his friends are still down there? And what kind of attack are they planning <laughs> against me, right? So I, I really wish I hadn't have brought my flashlight, but I, but I did. If, if I hadn't have brought my flashlight, it, wasn't as, it wouldn't be as if the dangers would have been any less. I just wouldn't have uh, been so worried about them, I guess. I, I may have actually run into more troubles, but uh, I wouldn't have had to think about them. I, I think that kind of uh, attitude is a little bit like... Um, Maybe some of you have watched the movie Ice Age or the, the series of movies Ice Age. There's a couple of great characters in Ice Age. Well, they're terrible characters in one sense. Um, but the, the main characters are fighting for their lives. They're fighting for the world, civilization. There's, there's big problems, and they're trying to tackle them head on. And in the midst of all of their very serious rescue-the-world kind of uh, uh, expedition, there's two possums named Crash and Eddie. And just as comic relief, Crash and Eddie are like catapulting from the trees and they're laughing and they're jumping and they're, they're just having the greatest old time. And at one point, they come hurling out of the trees and land in front of this mole hog. Uh, and his name is Lewis. And Lewis can't figure it out. Lewis realizes like the the. We, we have, uh, the world is at stake here. We have this huge uh, crisis going on. And, and he asks him, how are you both so able to, to play so happily? Uh, doesn't it weigh on you that the world might be ending? And Eddie asks Crash, he says, can I tell him our secret? And, and Crash gives him permission. And he says, come here, come here. He, 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 uh, then leans in and he's going to give him the secret that enables them to play so happily when the world devastation is, is at stake and others are, are, are working. To, and he says, we're really, really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> that, 
That's, that's their answer. And, and it's just this little moment of comic relief. It's a funny line. But we're supposed to, in reflecting on this big story, we're supposed to see that the message is don't be like Crash and Eddie. Even though they look like they're having a fun time and are, and are in, enjoying themselves, we're, we're really supposed to say, you know, although we like to say ignorance is bliss, ignorance isn't really bliss. Ignorance is kind of stupid sometimes. We need to turn the lights on. We need to see what is uh, going on around us. And I think the letter of Second Timothy that we have been studying is a little bit giving us a, a similar message that it would be perhaps much easier to turn the lights off, not really worry about what's going on around us, ignorance is bliss, go on with our lives, silly but happy. But no, uh, Paul w- it, it has been, has been uh, appealing to his disciple Timothy that something greater is at stake here. He's been calling him to, uh, to a life of impact. We, we've seen right from the beginning Paul is at this point suffering in a Roman prison uh, under terrible conditions, and uh, he's been trying to urge Timothy not to hold back. He knows how easy it would be for Timothy to do that, to just coast and be comfortable and settle and and live life without a flashlight and, and go about things as if there's nothing in the world to worry about. But Paul wants to urge him to do better than that. And he's going to remind him throughout this letter that at the end of the day, that's not the life that Christ has called us to. This series may have shone a light on areas in your life that maybe you'd just as soon not really look at or see. And um, maybe as we have been coming through this area and looking at areas of discipleship and mission, uh, Maybe one of the big questions that you've been thinking as you've been nodding and saying, yeah, I can see that, but maybe your heart is asking the question, why bother? Why bother to stick out your neck for your faith? Why bother to identify with Jesus Christ when it would be easier to just be silent about it? Why bother to use your gifts to serve when you could just attend church and Go about the rest of your week the way that you really wanted to without uh, really thinking too difficult, too, too hard about anything else. Uh, today's passage, I think, answers that why bother question. I think it is intended to give a sense of motivation and urgency to some of the lessons that we've been already looking at in, in, this, in this book. And so if... As we have been studying together through the summer, if you've found yourself nodding and say, nothing I can disagree with here, but not actually moving you to respond and to make changes and to look at ways that you might actually start living the, uh, the, this life of mission that this, uh, uh, the, that this uh, book has been appealing to us for, this This passage here, I believe, is intended to stir us, stir us to answer that why bother question and to move us to respond. The first answer to our why bother hearts is because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is the supreme fuel for a life of faith. He's worth it. And so to see that, I want want you to turn with me to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 8 and 9. 
2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says this, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Paul deliberately here brings up the suffering he's facing for the sake of the gospel. He mentions his suffering. He, he talks about being bound with chains as a criminal. And when he does so, he's not just talking about the physical chains, the, the, the physical hardship he's going through, although he's, he's experiencing plenty of physical hardship and he has right through his ministry. But he's bound with chains as a criminal. For that was... That, that was a, uh, probably a bigger challenge for Paul. He had grown up, and prior to coming to know Christ, he was always seen as a great rabbi, a great scholar. He was, a, he was the faithful Pharisee. After his conversion to Christianity, after he came to know Jesus Christ, he was, among many of his, his peers and the churches that he planted, he was the great apostle. Now he's just a criminal treated like a criminal, he's seen as a criminal, he's surrounded by other criminals, and that is part of the, uh, the sacrifice that he's had to endure to follow Christ and to try to make him known. So we're wondering and we're pondering, how could Paul endure so much? How could he go through all of this and still have this, this sense of courage and, and, and vitality to him? And so Paul is going to answer the question. He answers it, Uh, One way, in verse 8, he says, just to get us started, remember Jesus Christ. It's kind of an an odd thing to say to Timothy, isn't it? If you stop and consider a moment what's going on, the Apostle Paul is, is writing to his, his, his disciple. But Timothy at this point is, is in his mid to late 30s. Timothy is, he's a pastor. Like, he preaches sermons every week. Like, you wouldn't think that he would forget Jesus Christ. Uh, Timothy's mother is a believer. Timothy's grandmother is a believer. We learn in the next chapter that Timothy has been acquainted with the scriptures from a young age. How's he going to, like, forget Jesus Christ? Like, that would be a a fairly major thing to just kind of uh, drop from your memory, to to kind of skip over. But here's the thing that's happening here. I think we all have a tendency to assume Jesus Christ, to take Jesus Christ for granted. That's the point here. We do lots of Christian things, but can often do them without a real focus on Christ. We can do Christian activity. We can do Christian tradition, Christian exercise. And somehow, Christ often isn't the focus. And so Paul is telling Timothy and, 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 and God is telling us, Jesus doesn't go without saying. Jesus doesn't just get assumed and then you move on. Jesus needs to be the center. He's a fuel for a life of faith. For those of you who have been reading the Bible regularly, you, I'll bet last time you read 2 Timothy and you came to this chapter, you probably came to verse 8 and thought, well, there's nothing, nothing there for me for me, and you just kind of kept reading on. The appeal to remember Jesus Christ doesn't seem like anything that we need to really keep on the back burner. 
But I think that that's why we don't have an adequate answer to the why bother question. Christ isn't central. Christ isn't prominent in our thinking. Christ isn't lifted up in our thinking. And so the point is that the power to live a life of significance comes from knowing Jesus better. It comes from not assuming him or taking him for granted, but putting him at the center of our plans, our thoughts, our day-to-day understanding of how we see this world. So are you about to make a major decision? Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. Are, are you about to make a significant purchase? Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. Are, are you making some plans? Where does Jesus Christ fit into those plans? Are you tempted to pull back and settle as Paul was worried that Timothy might be? Remember Jesus Christ. Lift him up and put him in the center of your thinking, of your plans, of your hopes and your dreams. And, and that is our hope for, for moving forward. But it's not just that we're supposed to have some vague thoughts about Jesus. It, it's not we're just we're saying, Jesus, Jesus. Je-. It, it's, it's not just this vague concept. But remembering Jesus means growing in a deeper and fuller understanding of this Savior that we've been called to follow. So verse 8 gives a couple of things to remember about him. We're to remember Jesus who was risen from the, from the dead. He points to his resurrection. And he said, when you think of Jesus, think of him as the one who was lifted up, as the one who is risen from the dead. It, it gives an historical anchor to our faith. It reminds us that what we believe is not myth or speculation. It is rooted in history. It goes back to an, avoid, uh, an event that we can point to and we can say, you, you, you can bring a lot of attacks on Christianity, but this thing happened and we have to deal with it. Jesus is the one who's risen from the dead. It brings a, a seriousness to his words. His resurrection is victory over death. It's a demonstration of the power of God. It authenticates his message, calls us to listen. It takes our faith beyond the here and now and puts it in the context of eternity. In the same verse, we're also to remember Christ as the offspring of David. David was Israel's most famous king. He was the one under whom all of the enemies enemies were vanquished. The, The borders of Israel were extended. He brought in peace. He brought in victory. He was the courageous leader. He was the great king. He's also the one through whom we got most of our songs. He was the the worshiper of God, the poet that just meditated on God's goodness in a personal way and in a powerful way that stirred the nation, not only to enjoy the the, the fullness of uh, God's provision for them in the promised land, but to do so in a way that would worship God, that would be grateful to God and lift him up. The thing is, though, that no king after him ever quite lived up to his standard. We don't have a lot of, of, of great psalms written by other kings. We don't have others that would rise to David's standard. But there were prophecies and longings that someone would come. There was the hope that there would be another son of David, another king like David. There was hope that a Messiah would come from the line of David and that he would bring in the kind of uh, kingship, the kind of kingdom 
that, Jesus, that uh, David had, had begun. A son of David, another and greater king, Christ, the anointed one. The title Christ reminds us that Jesus is a king, an anointed one. He's the promised Messiah. He's a better David. And it reminds us that he deserves our loyalty, our allegiance, that we're to give ourselves to him, treat him as we would a great king. And as we submit to his rule, he becomes, becomes a source of our victory, of peace, and our blessing. So when your heart says, why bother? I want you to ask the question, have I somehow forgotten Jesus? Not forget forgotten that there's this person who, who's the center of, of the Christian religion, but somehow forgotten Jesus in the prominence uh, that he deserves in your faith? Have you forgotten to treat him like the one who conquered death? Have you forgotten to treat him like the king that he is? The second po- answer Paul gives to our why bother hearts is because salvation isn't automatic. There's work involved in bringing people to Christ. Salvation isn't automatic. Follow along as I read from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10 now. 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, to get at what Paul's saying here, we need to unpack one of the words that he uses, right? Because we don't normally talk like this. He says he endures everything for the sake of the elect. We don't really talk about the elect very often. Today, we usually use the word elect when we talk about voting someone into to office. There are a list of candidates. We check the box. We elect someone. We vote them into office. The Greek word here gets used about a couple dozen times in the New Testament, and it's either tr- translated as elect, like the elect, or chosen, the chosen. It, it's one of those two words. Elect, in most translation, gets, uh, gets used a little bit more than chosen, but it's, it's the same word. Jesus used the term, for instance, in Mark 13, 27, when he was describing the end times, when, when he will come to, uh, to, to bring salvation to those who are, who, are, who are waiting on him. He says, he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of, the he- of heaven. Here it's pretty clear that he's referring to those whom God has chosen for salvation, the elect. Romans 8.33, Paul asks, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Again, the elect here are those people whom God has chosen to justify or save. Now, people get pretty uncomfortable. I think most of us get uncomfortable at this point thinking, wait a second, God didn't like choose me. I, I chose him. I, I believed in him. They just, he kind of putting it like the other way around. I, I believed in him. Why is, it kind of, why is it saying that he chose me? But the scriptures explain that a person comes to believe in Christ because God first chose to work in their heart and draw them to himself. Look how Jesus puts it to his disciples in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. 
the di- disciples would say, no, I, I can distinctly remember that day. I, we were the one, we walked up to you, Jesus. And he said, no, I had, I had chosen you already. I had already singled you out. That's why you came. The, the, the idea is that the human heart is so hardened towards God that if God didn't first wor- work in a person's heart to soften them, to open them up to him, nobody would come. Nobody would respond. Nobody would come to him. And so he, as a special act of his grace, uh, first works in a person's heart to draw them to, to himself. Now, this is probably one of the most difficult truths in the Bible and uh, very difficult to get your head around. Uh, it's, it's the biblical equivalent of trying to understand time travel, right? You, you see those, whether it's a movie or a television show where they're, they're talking about time travel, and everybody's like, I don't know if I can get my head around that. It, this is just a passing reference to it. It's a word, uh, and, and so if, if that's confusing, uh, don't worry. But there's one thing that you do need to understand from this passage, and, and that's why we camped on this word, elect. We do need to understand that Paul believed there was a group of people that God called the elect or the chosen. And far from being a deterrent to his motivation, somehow Paul believed that was a motivation to what he was doing. Watch what's going on here. He doesn't say, well, God's chosen some people as special objects of his mercy, so I can just sit around and wait for God to do something about it. That, that's what theologians will call a hyper-Calvinist. Paul wasn't like that. Paul's what I call a hyper-evangelistic Calvinist. Watch what he says here. In verse 10, he's essentially saying, if God has chosen to draw some people to himself, I'm willing to endure everything to reach them. If he's elected some people as special objects of his grace, I'll do whatever it takes to see them obtain this great salvation. Now, why would he say that? Try and put yourself in his shoes. He's used to people stoning him when he preaches the gospel. He's used to people arresting him when he tries to make Christ known. Like, we get, I, we have these conversations, right? We, we get, like, really worked up that, that Christianity is not as popular as it, in Canada as it was 20 years ago. Like, what on earth are we going to do? But it's just, like, not as popular at this point, Right? Paul was like on a whole different plane. He makes, him, he makes Christ known and people want to like pick up rocks and throw them at him. That, that, that's the kind of environment that he, he's in. And it would, be, it would have been very easy for Paul to say, look, like this, this generation, like forget it. This is just like impossible. They, not, nobody's interested. Nobody wants this message that I'm given. I'm just going to... I'm just going to get, you know, my parchments and, and, and study the scriptures in a, in a cave somewhere because nobody, nobody wants this. Every, it just gets worse. Every time I open my mouth, there's, there's more resistance. He could have said that. But he believed that it wasn't all up to these people. He believed that although the human heart was as hard as could be, God had still chosen some. God, God was working, even in that sinful generation, to stir in some people's hearts to, 
to melt their hearts, to turn them from this hardness to sin and to draw them to himself. And Paul believed that. He believed that there was this group called the elect, the chosen, and it gave him hope when he would have otherwise given up. It, it was the same thing, honestly, that gave uh, Jennifer and I hope in, in Japan. A- as we saw the obstacles of culture, as we saw the, the, the incredible resistance, the pressure that families brought to bear against people who turned to Christ, we just thought, humanly, this is completely impossible. I- if it's just up to these people wh- to, to, to respond to this message, I don't think it will ever happen but we believe that it wasn't just up to these people. We believe that God in his grace was working in, in, in a special act of his grace and mercy to bring people to himself. And so we hung on because we believed that that, that was happening and that's what we experienced. And I, I think something's happening with, the, something similar is happening with, with, with Paul here. I wonder how your perspective would change if you knew that God had some of his elect, some of his chosen among your work colleagues. Like right now you can't see it. Right now you don't know who they are. But if you knew and believed that God had some chosen ones, some whom he had chosen to respond, chosen to believe among your neighbors maybe among your classmates if you had that conviction how would it change the way you respond to them would it change the way you saw them i think it gives you hope it means that one rejection doesn't mean that you're going to get a second rejection it just means that maybe maybe god's not working in their hearts for maybe they're still stuck in that hardness doesn't mean that i write off the whole company doesn't mean that I give up on the whole class. It means that I believe that God, God has a plan here and I, my goal is to try and cooperate with him in it. It means that I, I'm, I'm not, it just isn't all up to me. It isn't all up to them. It means that I seek God more. It means that I, I live in the moment with God trying to understand what he's doing in a person's life and believing that if God works, if God speaks and if God draws the person, everything changes. If God has chosen even one or two of the people around you, don't you want to be the person that was a part of the solution? Don't you want to be the person that was there to, to play your part, the part that God had 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 desired for you to play in that person's coming to know Christ? Who wants to, be a, who wants to be the Christian who didn't do a thing to help him? Who wants to be the person who, when that person whom God has chosen does come to know Christ, comes up to you and says, you know what? I, I just came to know Christ and it's the most amazing miracle of my life. It's the most incredible discovery of my life. Somebody told me that you were a Christian. Dude, why didn't you tell me? Why, why were you silent about it? I looked to you. I respected you. Nobody wants to be that person. And so Paul is urging Timothy. God is urging us. 
believe that God is at work in the people around you. We don't know who they are. We don't know how many of them there are. But God has called us to play a role. And he gives us that opportunity. We need to cooperate with his plan. So we've been shining a light on what's involved in a life of impact. And we've said that our biggest struggle is with our complacent hearts, right? It's the, 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 the sluggishness that says, why bother? We've answered our heart sluggishness by saying that, first of all, Jesus is worth it. We need to start focusing on him, not just Christian religion and activity, but focusing on Jesus Christ to put him in the center. And we've also said that salvation is an automatic, that God's election gives us encouragement, but it doesn't give us a free pass. It doesn't let anyone off the hook. The final answer to our why bother heart is because eternity is at stake. How we respond to Jesus and his mission is not extracurricular. Eternity is at stake. Watch this, how this gets developed now as I read from verses 11 to 13. 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 13. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll also deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, in verse 11, Paul starts by saying, if we've died with him, we will also live with him. It's a way of talking about salvation, right? But it's talking about it in a very specific way, a very deliberate way. I I think he deliberately doesn't say, if we've prayed the prayer, we will also live with him. Doesn't say that. He says, if we have died with him. When we Put our faith in Jesus Christ. When we ask him for forgiveness, what we're doing is we're saying, this path of life that I have been on is, it's it's heading to death. It's heading to destruction. I realize I've missed the mark and sin leads to death. And I want to walk away from that path. That's called repentance. I want to turn from that path and I'm embracing the salvation, the hope, the forgiveness, and the acceptance that, I believe only you can provide. That, 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 that is a, a confession of faith. That's how someone receives forgiveness. In verse 11, Paul's reminding Timothy that the incredible promise of this eternal life is for those who have died to that old life, turned their back on it, walked away from it, and received the, with that the forgiveness of that old life, the cleansing from that old life that only Jesus can provide. It's a warning also to not return to it, right? Remember, this promise, this great promise, for those who have died to the old life, for those who have turned their backs on it, it's an encouragement but also a warning. Verse 12 gives a similar encouragement slash warning. It's a double-edged sword. It says, if we endure, we'll also reign with him. This amazing promise of our future life in God's renewed creation is held out. It's a promise of, of, of reigning him. It's, it's, it's a position of restored dignity, of, uh, of honor, of a, of a calling that has significance. It's a promise that we will live like kings under Jesus as the king of kings. 
It's a great promise. But it's not, pro- it's not a promise given to those who just hold back on and, and hold on just for the good times. It's, it's not a promise for those who back away. The promise is given to those who endure, those who continue to, to trust in Jesus Christ, to walk in Jesus Christ, continue to live for Jesus Christ, continue to stand for Jesus Christ. Then after two warning-laden encouragements, the first two are kind of encouragement and kind of warning, we get a, a warning-laden warning, a, a warning with a warning. Verse 12 says chillingly, if we deny him, he will also deny us. At that point, we're tempted to stop Paul and say, like, you're kind of going too far here. It's not saying if you kind of stumble and, and deny him this, this one time, then forget it, it's all over. No, no, if you, as a pattern of your life, really show that you have denied Jesus Christ, then the warning is that his response to you uh, will be the same. We'd, we want to stop Paul and say, you've gone too far in those words, but Paul got them from Jesus himself. Luke 9.26, Jesus warned the same thing. He uses even stronger language. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Here's the thing. If, if Jesus said that the greatest commandment, like if you want to just boil it down to two, the first one has got to be love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And if you're not even willing to identify with him, not even willing to be kind of counted as one of his, you'd really want to question whether you kind of got this Christianity thing after all, right? Like, if I came up to you at a, at a, at a Christmas party and I was like, wow, I, you know, we've, we've known each other for some time. I, I've never seen a, a, I've never noticed your, your wedding ring before. I, you've never told me. You, you have a wife. Like, is she here? Is, is, have, have you been married for, for a long time? And you were like, uh... Yeah, I've, I've uh, yeah, about 15 years. Um, she's, she's over there. I, I'd be worried about your relationship. I think, w- what's going on there? Like, what, what, what is, like, what, what, what's happening in this marriage, right? And Paul is saying something similar about our relationship with Jesus Christ. If, n- not as kind of a one-shot, oh, I blew it, I just... I, I was scared, I was, I was a coward, I just didn't open my mouth. No, he's not talking about that. But if it's a pattern of your life, you people would say, that person, I had no idea. Like, <laughs> you know, if he would, people would say, I think that person's denied Jesus Christ, not as a one shot, but as a pattern of her life. You'd say, I'm not sure what's really going on there with you and Jesus. Really ca- calls that into question. And so he offers up the warning. Now, if you treated a spouse like that, uh, you might not have a spouse, that spouse for very long, right? That, that, that would cause, like, they'd probably, you know, you just forget it. You're going to treat me like that, like, uh, I'm out of here. That, that, that might happen. 
but with Jesus, it's never too late to change. It's never too late to make things right. And that's why this passage ends with this powerful word of encouragement. The word of hope comes in verse 13, and it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, it's not saying if we're faithless, hey, don't worry, because Jesus is so great, he's going to save us all anyway. It's not saying that, because verse 12 said the exact opposite, right? Can't be saying that. What it is saying is Jesus isn't the kind of person that when you blow it, he writes you off. He's not the kind of person that says, you know what? You've been blowing it for an awful long time. I'm out of here. He says he's faithful. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess them, when we repent of them, when we come before him in humility and say, I kind of, I've been really blowing it, like, in a, in a big way. He's the faithful one. He doesn't change. He's the constant. And it is an encouragement to us that we can always turn back to him. There's always hope, always encouragement for the repentant, always the door open for those who would say, I've kind of been blowing it in some significant areas in my relationship with you, and I want to make things right. And verse 13 tells us that door of relationship is always open. There's always hope held out because Jesus' faithfulness is something that never changes. It doesn't cool. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't, he doesn't raise the bar. He doesn't put us on probation. He opens, uh, he, he opens his arms, and he welcomes us back to him. So let's not give in to a complacent why bother heart. Let's get in the game. Let's serve and use our gifts for his glory. Let's make an impact with our lives. Even when it seems like it'd be an awful lot easier to just do nothing, just turn off the light, go about our lives, not thinking too, not thinking too much. Jesus is worth it. Let's get our focus on him and not forget him. Salvation isn't automatic. There are people around us that God is working in their hearts. He wants to bring them good news of salvation, and he's put you there for a reason. And let's live our lives like eternity's at stake. Like the stakes really are as high as they are. Because one day we're all going to see how high those stakes are. And we're going to want to be there we're going to want to be there with a with a readiness that comes from having lived life having recognized all that was at stake let's look to god in prayer heavenly father we pray that you would heal our sluggish hearts forgive us for the ways that we've resisted you ways that maybe we've even denied you Give us the faith to care, to respond, to live lives focused on Jesus Christ and all that he is, all that he's accomplished, all that he's been for us. Help us to not take Jesus for granted or try and live the Christian life without him at the center. Help us to remember him, to lift him up. Father, we believe you're at work in the lives of some of the people around us. So give us a willingness to join them. 
Help us to make an effort to reach the people you care for so dearly. And Father, help us to live with our eyes on eternity and all you've prepared for those who would turn to you, who would look to you, and who would live for you. We praise you, Father, and we pray in the powerful name of Jesus Christ.